calcium is a necessary mineral for life. In addition to building strong and healthy bones and keeping um, um, them healthy, calcium actually enables our blood to clot, our muscles to contract, and our heart to beat. Those are all pretty important, right? You want those to happen. But like many things in life, too much of a good thing can be dangerous. So if you have too much calcium in your body, that's a condition called hypercalcemia, which can cause abdominal pain, bone pain, depression, kidney stones, and even lead to abnormal heart rhythms. In fact, there's an extremely rare disease. It's a a degenerative neurological condition called Farr's disease. And what happens with Farr's is it's characterized by these abnormal deposits of calcium in areas of the brain that control movement. Okay, you don't want hard deposits in your brain, right? It's an inherited disease, and basically the body over time deposits these calcium uh, deposits, and it forms a, 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 a callousness in the brain that, that uh, leads to the hardening of the brain in areas that control movement. See, too much of a good thing built up in the wrong place, instead of being worked out, actually becomes toxic. Mark Dever, who's a pastor out in D.C., says this, I fear that many religious people in churches have a toxic buildup of religious knowledge that's not lived out. It's like the calcium, too much in the wrong place, not worked out, actually becomes toxic. And we can gather so much religious knowledge that just makes these deposits in our body, but it's never worked out, it's never lived out, and it actually becomes toxic. That's the message of James in a nutshell. James tells us that religion or faith that is cognitively understood but not in faith lived out is worthless and it actually becomes toxic to you. The book of James is this great diagnostic tool that's going to teach us the difference between a faith that is active, dynamic, and growing versus pseudo-faith, empty religion that's dormant, inactive, and decaying. We've seen so far that a genuine faith is refined and revealed through the fires of trial that actually leads to joy. Last week, Jeremy told us that genuine faith doesn't merely hear the words of God, but actively seeks to put them into practice. And we've been hearing that James says, look, your faith does not have to be perfect. All of life is actually working to perfect your faith. The goal here is progress. Our faith is a work in progress, but it does need to be forward progress. God, by his grace, he will shape and direct our faith so that it reaches his desired end. You can trust him in that. He has a goal in mind for you, and he is working to see that goal through completion. Now, this morning, James wants to put another diagnostic test in front of us, and he's going to ask this question. How do you treat people? How do you treat people? Because the way that we treat people actually reveals the kind of faith that we have in our hearts. All of us this morning are going to have to come to grips with the fact that we are all prone towards partiality and prejudice. Everyone. Everyone. Without exemption, without fail, all of us have our preferences and our partialities. 
James is going to teach us that how we treat people is going to reveal the substance of our faith. See, our faith is internal and intangible. You can't just show me faith. So it makes it hard to see. But James is going to tell us how we treat other people reveals our faith and it puts it on display. So in our passage this morning, James is going to give us a diagnosis of prejudice. He's going to tell us what it is, what, what is the nature of it. Then he's going to explain the prognosis of prejudice. Left alone, what does the disease of prejudice do? Why is it so perilous? Why is it so destructive? And finally, James is going to give us the treatment. How can we get, be free from the virus of prejudice? So we'll see a diagnosis, the prognosis, and the treatment of prejudice. Let's jump right in to verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Remember, James is writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ who've been adopted into the family of God because of a loving father who spared no cost to secure their adoption. He is writing to Christians, people who would say, I have faith in God. He lived the life, Jesus lived the life I could not live. He died the death that I deserve to die. He gave me his righteousness and he took my sin on the cross. And on the cross, he put my sin, my shame, my guilt all to death. And now I live as Christ lives in me. That's what a Christian fundamentally believes. Now James gives one, another one of his 55 direct calls to action, forcing us to ask again, are we going to be merely hearers of the word? Or are we going to be doers of the word? Here's that command, that direct call to action. He says, do not show partiality or prejudice as you hold your faith in Christ. He's saying you can't have faith in Christ and claim faith on one hand and be prejudiced on the other. He's saying as you live out your faith, it matters how you treat and interact with others. See, if you will process your every thought, your every action, through the lens of your faith, it will actually begin to change how you live. Now, before we go defining prejudice, we need to unpack how, G how James just described Jesus as the Lord of glory. So we, we tend to jump over those little phrases, but they're packed with so much meaning. So first off, what is glory? J. Alec Mateer gives a great definition for glory. He says, glory is shorthand. It's like, a, it's like a, uh, an abbreviation. Glory is shorthand for the personal presence of the Lord in all his goodness and in the fullness of his revealed character. Glory is the, the shorthand way to say all of who God is, all of his awesomeness, right up in front. All of who he is, his character, his perfection, the fullness of his character. When you try to, to think about all of that, the gloriousness, the radiance of that, that is his glory. Now, how does that relate to Jesus? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. He's the image of him. And he tells us that the fullness of God... All of who God is was pleased to dwell in Christ. The Apostle John tells us in his uh, gospel that the word of God, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And, and John says, we've seen his glory, the glory of Jesus as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Family, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's glory. 
You want to know what God's glory is? It's Jesus himself. All the fullness of, uh, of God, all of his goodness on display in Christ. Now, why does that matter? When we see the glory of Christ, it will reorder and redefine glory for us. See, all of us are looking for glory, right? We want to find what's most important, what's most weighty, what's most valuable, and give our lives to it. What James is telling us, look to Christ. If you want to define glory, look to him. Look to Jesus to define truth and goodness and beauty. As you look to him, you will start to value what he values. You'll want to pursue what he pursues. And you will start to look at people the way that he looks at people. When you're wrapped up in the glory of God, you want to be faithful to him and live as he would have us live. All of us, by default, will live for whoever or whatever we believe is most glorious. It's, you, you can't turn that on or off. It just is. It's built into you. You live your life for and in worship to whoever and whatever you believe, whatever I believe is most valuable and glorious. What happens is whatever you think is most glorious, it has a gravity that pulls you in and you can't escape it. In fact, the word glory even means weightiness. It has a gravitas to it that pulls you in. So it matters who you ascribe glory to. And our only hope at living out this command today is to have faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who himself is immune to prejudice and partiality. If you want to escape prejudice and partiality, you need to be with the one who is completely and totally immune to it. Jesus Christ does not play favorites. He does not show prejudice. He does not give preference to one race over another, one gender over another, one class over another, one pedigree over another, one nation over another, or one whatever over another. This word partiality can also be translated as favoritism, prejudice. It literally means to receive the face. When you receive someone, you're giving your attention to it. You're giving your worship to it. It means to make judgments and give preferential treatment to the people, to people based on external factors like wealth, race, gender, status. It can be anything that you prefer. And if you give preferential treatment to that, that is prejudice. Another way to say it, it's withholding or giving glory love, affection, hospitality, friendship, mercy, kindness, or service to people based on external realities. This does not mean we don't recognize differences in people. That would be the worst thing that could happen. The differences are part of God's beauty on display. The worst thing that could happen is that we become a homogeny. No, no, no. Jesus is not calling us to flatten differences, but he does prohibit the elevation, the preference, or the favoritism of a particular distinction. Are you following me on that? Prejudice and partiality is antithetical to the gospel. Prejudice is based on external merits, external things where the gospel is based on grace. And because prejudice is anti-gospel, it's also anti-God. 
See, the Bible reveals that God himself is impartial. He looks at the heart rather than the outside of a person. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, hear me, who is not partial and takes no bribes. He does not elevate one distinction or another, and you cannot buy his favor. Because God is impartial and does not play favorites as those made in his image who are anchored by his glory, we cannot do that either. So what James is telling us is do not make distinctions about people based on any external factor. Whether it be the way they dress, the color of their skin, their attractiveness, or any physical appearance either. Now, lest you think this is just hypothetical, it's not. It was happening in James's time, and it's happening in our time right now. And not just out there, guys. Look at me. In here, we are all prone to do it, every one of us. He's addressing this topic because it's prevalent and rampant, and we are addressing this topic. You know why? Because it's prevalent and it's rampant. By default, every one of us in here, myself included, we compare, we envy, we jockey for position, and we elevate our preferences to a divine status. And as a result, we prefer and elevate some people over others. And at the same time, we devalue others and avoid them. That's prejudice. That's partiality. James says, don't do it. Look at verse 2 and 4 with me. He's going to give us a description. He's given us kind of this definition. Now he gives us a description. He says, If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, Hey, you sit here while you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. James says, imagine a scenario. Two people walk into your church. One's this rich man. He's wearing expensive clothing from the kind of store you gotta take out a small loan to afford the whole outfit, right? And then he says, there's this other man who comes in and he is shabby. This guy smells like the sewer. He's dirty, clothes are tattered, mismatched, street stained. You look at the rich man, you know, he must be influential. He's interesting. How did he get all that money? He's attractive. His wealth and status means that he could potentially benefit you. So James says, you try to cozy up to him. But the poor man, he's dirty. He's repulsive. Like you have that gag reflex when you're around him. He can't offer you anything. In fact, he's probably going to cost you something, isn't he? He's probably going to need your help. The rich man could reward you, but the poor man is going to require something of you. What will our inclination be? To pay attention to the wealthy person and give them preferential treatment. Now, we may not do it out loud, but in our hearts, we prefer one over the other. We'll pay attention to the wealthy person. We'll give them preferential treatment. While the poor man will experience our prejudice, we won't even give them the gift of our presence. Our only notice and concern will be to make sure he doesn't sit too close to anyone or cause a scene. See, we instinctively give our presence, attention, and time to who and what we value. 
And because as a culture we value money and power, our hearts are just drawn to give the affluent person our attention. Don't we see this in the media? I mean, who has the most followers on social media? Who are the people paying the most attention to? The rich, the powerful, the influencers. We give an inordinate amount of our time and money to them. We want their advice, their insight, their wisdom on all kinds of matters that, that they're not even subject matter experts on. And if they came into our gathering today, we would be tempted to give them preferential treatment. James says, when we do that, we've become crooked judges who make evil distinctions. Now, first off, James is not saying that every kind of distinction is wrong and evil. Let me explain this. I would not let a five-year-old babysit my children, right? In that case, I'm making an age-based distinction. It also happens to be wise and good, right? I'm making a distinction. There are times when it's wise and holy to make distinctions. Someone with a pattern of abuse should not be allowed to watch children unattended, right? That's just wisdom. Someone without medical training should not be allowed to perform surgery. That's a distinction, right? Career-based discrimination, but it's a good one. It's a right one, and no one in here would sit on that operating table with a guy who's like, Don't, trust me, I read a book about it. You're like, you've never done this before? Nope. You've never been to middle school? No, but I read a book. I'm all set. You'd be like, well, I'm not all set, right? Distinctions like this is not prejudice. It's discerning wisdom. But this is not the kind of distinction James is making. He's talking about distinctions with evil intentions that unnecessarily divide the community by devaluing some people and overvaluing others. Do you see the difference between those things? He's calling us out on making distinctions based on false, evil, and unholy premises. See, the word here for distinctions means divided. It's actually the same word that we saw a couple weeks ago when we looked at the man who was doubting, right? We said that James is returning back to this theme to saying, when you make those kinds of distinctions, you have a divided heart in your relationship to God and how that plays out with other people. What he's saying is, when you have a divided heart about God, you will have a divided heart towards people. When your heart's divided towards God, you cannot look at people the same way that he does. The discrimination and prejudice manifested in the community is a result of a wavering, divided attitude towards God. What he's saying is, if you find sin in your life, you can always trace it back to some kind of unbelief, disbelief, wrong belief about God. Remember what we just said a few minutes ago about having the glory of Jesus being the anchor for your faith and the standard by which you judge what is good, true, and beautiful? What divided here means is that you have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this world. You have two mutually opposed standards, and you're applying them to people in different ways. What James is saying is you can either face towards Christ, have your hope and anchor in him, have him be the object of your glory and greatest affection, or you're going to have your eyes anchored to the standards of the world that give preferential treatment and prejudice to people of their preference. You can't face both ways. You can only face Jesus or someone else. 
You cannot face Christ and value what he values and love what he loves and at the same time turn away from the poor to favor the rich. He's saying you can't do that. Don't withhold love and kindness and gentleness and hospitality and grace from others based on external things. You cannot say in your declaration of faith, I am saved by grace and grace alone and not show grace to people. It's hypocrisy. And James says, don't do it. When you do that, you're trading the glory of Christ that will never fade for an earthly glory that will always fade. James says, don't try to face two ways. It's one or the other. That's the diagnosis. That's prejudice. Now look at the next seven verses as he details what happens if it goes untreated. Verse five, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. See, what a prognosis does is it gives a, a forecast of a disease. If you don't treat it, here's what's going to happen. He's going to give us three reasons why prejudice is so devastating. The first reason is theological. He says, look, it's contrary to the character of God. Now, at first glance, it might seem in these verses that God does play favorites to favor the poor, but that's not his point. See, in his day, people assumed if someone was wealthy, it meant that you were a good moral person, you had a good pedigree, and that God was blessing you. And if you saw someone poor, you just assumed, man, they must be morally corrupt. They come from a bad family line. They can't really get it together. And so God is, as a result of that, not blessing them. And in a lot of ways, not much has changed, right? People still kind of have that underlying belief. What, what James is doing here is flipping the script. He's saying, hasn't God chosen, he's, God has not chosen people based on their merit or performance. He doesn't bless those who deserve it. He doesn't bless those who have a good family line. That's not the way God works. God is a God of grace. And his election, his choosing is not based on our performance, but based purely on his love. Now, this truth is all over the Bible I could go on and on and on with example after example. Let me just give you one from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, if God chose us based on our performance, we'd be, able to go, we'd be able to go up to God and be like, hey, God, good choice. I nailed it. But it's not based on that. Anyone ever played pickup games in sports growing up in the neighborhood or in gym class? I hated that time. Team captains, who are they? The best athletes, right? And then the shaming begins. They pick one by one and choose their teams based on who is best. Right? And it goes on and on and on till two or three people are left, me and two other people. We're the people no one wants. But that is not how God chooses. Amen? Amen. That's not how God chooses. That's anti-gospel. That's anti-God. And it completely contradicts God's character to extend mercy uh, and grace to those who don't deserve it. He doesn't choose us because we're awesome or great. He chooses us because he's awesome and great. 
No mind can comprehend how and why he chooses. If you try to come up with a paradigm for God, it's going to bust your brain open. You can't do it. All we know is that none of us are deserving of his grace. None of us. Not a single person. But in his abundant grace, he chooses wretches like you and me to receive his extravagant love. And before you think God's playing favorites with the poor here, remember, he said those who inherit the kingdom are those who love him. Not just those who are poor. God, what James is doing is he's setting right that misconception that God favors the rich and disregards the poor. Do you want to be an heir of the kingdom? James is saying, love God. Those who love God will inherit the kingdom. It's not become poor and you'll inherit the kingdom. He says, love God. That's to whom the, the kingdom is promised. It's not your poverty that secures salvation. It's faith and trust in God through Christ. God has delighted to shower his grace on those that the world has discarded and those who inherently know that they're inadequate and needy. He just loves showering his grace on them. That's what James is saying. He's saying those people who you think are discarded, God just loves showering them with grace, even though they don't deserve it. Remember what Jesus said? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, when we realize that all of us come into this room today spiritually impoverished, every one of us actually walked in as the poor man and the poor woman. When we realize that we're poor, then we're going to look for who can make us rich. And that's Christ. And those who love him will inherit his kingdom. See, when you love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, you will be captivated by his glory, compelled by his character, and determined to treat people, both rich and poor, from any class, any pedigree, with the same kind of dignity, love, and respect that God shows him. See, to really believe the gospel and live out your faith means that you cannot discriminate against anyone because of age, social status, economic bracket, weight, clothing, race, education, or just people that are easy for you to be around. That was a hard one for me to write because I just enjoy being around people that I like. And even that is a kind of prejudice. And when you do that, you dishonor God. And James says it shows that you don't fully understand the gospel. Look at 6b. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James says the second reason why prejudice is so devastating is it's actually contrary to common sense. He says it defies logic. You give preferential treatment to the very ones who are oppressing you and who are the ones who are opposed to God. He says that makes no sense, does it? Verses 6 to 7 tell us that at this time there was a ton of persecution in the early church. And it was the rich who were especially guilty of persecuting early Christians. See, James is tough on the wealthy because it was the wealthy who were causing the most trouble for the early church. And he's saying, the very class of people who make it hard for you to be a Christian, who trample on the name of Christ, they're the ones you're trying to impress and gain favor with? He's like, why would you do that? He says, is is it so that by showing them favor, 
somehow they'll return the favor to you? Is it so that somehow you can benefit from their security and their status? Let me make this practical for us. Are there times when you give preferential treatment to people who you think can help you land the next promotion or maybe get you that apartment or help you climb up the social ladder? I'm not saying don't be savvy and smart about how you interact with people. That's not what I'm saying. But the point here is, are you giving preferential treatment? Do you overvalue them because of what you can gain from them and withhold your presence and withhold your attention from people who you think can't benefit you? That's the heart of prejudice. And it defies the logic of the gospel because in that moment, you're putting your hope and your security in what people can benefit you instead of trusting in Christ to give you those things in his grace. See, when you put your security and stock in Christ, it actually frees you to treat people equally because now you don't need them. You don't need them to give you anything. And so you're just free to love people the way that Christ loves them. See, we've been called by the honorable and beautiful name of Christ. When you have his name and his status, you don't need someone else to give you a name. You don't need someone else to give you a status. You have the highest status you could ever achieve in Christ. Now look at verses 8 to 11. Let's see the third reason why prejudice is so devastating. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James's third reason why the prognosis is so devastating is that it's contrary to the command in Scripture to love. See, that's what the royal law really is. The royal law, as the name suggests, is the law given by the king, right? That's what makes it royal. Royalty has given it. So who's the king? Who's the king? A little louder. Jesus. King Jesus is the king. See, when Jesus came, he didn't abolish the law or do away with it, but he did correct our misunderstanding of it, and he helped us see the essence of it. See, one, there was a time when Jesus was here, and they said, hey, what's the greatest command? Like, sum it all up for us, Jesus. And he said, it's just real simple for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'll give you a bonus one. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, what's the royal law? It's this. Love God entirely and love others as God loves them. That's it. You want to know what Jesus is all about? Love God entirely and love others as I love them. So who are we to love? Jesus said, love your neighbor. But just in case we tried to wiggle out of that because we love wiggling out of things, he defined neighbor for us. And he said, your neighbor is anyone in need. Raise your hand if you've ever been in need. Looks like everybody just raised their hand. So who's our neighbor? Anybody. 
and everybody because everybody has needs. James is saying, if you will love everybody like that, then you are living out your faith well. If not, you need to examine your life where you're failing to do that. And he says, showing partiality violates that royal law of loving your neighbor. And he made it real clear, didn't he? He said, showing partiality, showing prejudice is sin. There's that word we don't like. James has already told us how devastating sin is. Two weeks ago, he said, sin brings forth death. 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 Sin is serious. You know why? It leads to death. Do you know the word here for committing sin is actually the word for working? So here's what he's saying. When we violate the royal law, we are working sin. And for our work, we earn death. It's serious. See, we often want to get credit for following the laws that we've not broken, the ones that are easy for us. And we want that to kind of accrue a credit for us to make up for the ones that we violate. If you ask someone about their moral record before God, if you ever done that said hey man how do you think you stand before God one of the first things they'll always say is you know I've not been perfect but never killed anybody right who's heard that before right well I've never killed anybody I'm not that bad right I've never really done the bad stuff so the minor bad stuff I've done like giving preferential treatment being slightly racist treating others with contempt that stuff's not really that bad right because I've never killed anybody as if that was the only thing God ever cared about. Sorry, guys. James shatters that whole paradigm. He says, breaking one aspect of the royal law actually makes you guilty of breaking the whole thing. It's a package deal. You don't get to just pick and choose what you follow. One pastor said it well. He said it like this. The law is not like a heap of stones. If you take away one of them, what are you left with? A heap of stones, right? No, no, the law is more like a sheet of glass. Once it's cracked, the whole thing is cracked and it's compromised and with its integrity broken, the sheet will collapse. That's what the law is like. It's it's a package deal. It's all or nothing. So if you have failed to love your neighbor, to give them the dignity that they deserve, to serve them at cost to yourself, you have failed to keep the royal law. And in failing to keep the royal law, you've broken all of them. Which means all of us are transgressors. All of us have broken God's law. And all of us stand condemned under it. Please don't shut me out yet. Do not pass over this quickly. The danger of saying this to a room full of really nice people, and all of you are really, really nice people. I trust all of you in a back alley, right? The problem with saying this to a room full of nice people is that you will assume you've never discriminated against anybody. You're going to assume you've never had the slightest hint of racism in your life. And it's just simply not true. Just because it's never been flagrant or rampant or like KKK level, it doesn't mean you haven't had something in your heart, some kind of discrimination in your heart, some kind of prejudice in your heart. And I don't mean in the past. I mean right now. 
All of us at some point, and likely right now, give people our preference, give the people of our preference better treatment. You can call it whatever you want. Call it micro-racism, call it micro-preference, micro-classism, micro-sexism, call it micro-whatever. Every one of us in here will struggle with it. We are all guilty. James is saying, I don't care that you've never murdered or committed adultery. To go there deflects responsibility for what we need to take responsibility for today. We often reduce the seriousness of prejudice to minor infractions. And James is saying, it can't make it more clear that God really, and I mean really, really cares how we treat people. Like he really cares about it. It's right up there with murder and adultery. We cannot pass by it. It may not be the exact same thing as murder, but family, hear me, it will receive the same judgment. It makes you a transgressor of the whole law. And because of that, we cannot glibly overlook how we treat others. The prognosis is devastating and perilous because our prejudice makes us guilty of breaking God's law. It's sin and sin brings forth death. If this is a pattern in your life and you do not desire to repent, James gives a weighty and sober warning that we will be among those who are deceived about our relationship with God and we will face judgment. One of the most unloving things a pastor could ever do is give people a false hope and a false affirmation about their belief in him. I have the weighty task to say what is true, even if it's unpopular. James would rather make us uncomfortable so that we actually take stock and examine our hearts rather than tickle our ears with empty affirmations. Every one of us needs to leave here today and ask, where do I show prejudice? Where do I have racism harbored in my heart somewhere? Where do I give preferential treatment? Every one of us needs to do that today. Are you willing to ask that hard question this morning? Do you have an inhospitable heart to receive people who are different than you, more needy than you, less fun to be around than you? Are there certain types of people that you simply just wish to stay away from? That posture is prejudice, and it will kill you if it's left untreated. This prognosis has detailed how devastating a virus it really is. Let's look at the last couple of verses to see the treatment plan as we close. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So maybe you've been asking, I've shared a lot of bad news. Is there a cure? How can my heart be rid of prejudice? James has a treatment plan for us. He says, speak and act as those who will be judged under this law of liberty. So what is this law of liberty? What does it mean to be judged under it? The law of liberty is really just James's way of saying that the law was given to God, by God not to add bondage to us, but to actually free us. That's why it's a law of liberty. It was given to us as a gift. It was given so that we would know what sin is and how to live a life that pleases God. It was to show us how God has designed us so that we could lead a life that is truly marked by freedom. 
The problem is no one has obeyed God's law perfectly. And so we are all transgressors of it and stand in violation of it. So what is our hope since we have all failed to live up to the law of liberty? Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who has perfectly lived up to the law of liberty. He lived it out perfectly, and everyone who is in Christ has that perfect record attributed to them. If you're in Christ, all that's true of him becomes true of you. So now in Christ, God's gracious acceptance of us does not end our obligation to live out and follow his law. Right, Just because we're in Christ and his record is given to us doesn't mean we get out of living it out. That's what James is saying. He says this just means that we live out his law freely and doing so will continue to lead to more and more freedom. When you live as God has designed you, it will lead to more and more freedom. I tell my kids all the time, if you want more freedom, follow our rules. More rule, following the rules you have actually helps us learn to trust you, that you're going to make wise and good decisions, and then we can remove these boundaries and restrictions so you can live more freely. But when you don't follow the rules, it actually leads to more rules and more restrictions. See, the law is meant to free us. No longer is God's law a threatening, confining burden. God has delivered us, liberated us from the penalty of our sin that the law demanded. Christ has fulfilled all the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices, and now we are free men and women in Christ. We can now live out the essence of that law, that royal law to love God and love others without fear of condemnation. Isn't that amazing? You can live out God's law without feeling the weight of it anymore. And you can experience the joy that comes by living out God's law. And if that weren't enough, the Spirit of God himself writes that law on our hearts and empowers us to live it out. See, if you have a genuine faith in Christ, Christ the love of Christ is already in your heart. See, you were loved when you were unlovable. You were favored when you were unfavorable. You were sought when you were undesirable. You were shown hospitality when you were inhospitable. You were shown mercy when you deserved judgment. Don't you see James's point? He's saying, how can you set yourself up as evil judges, showing partiality to people, when instead of receiving judgment for what you deserve, you were shown mercy? See what he's saying? Instead of receiving judgment, you were shown mercy. So how can you now show judgment to others? As those who've received mercy, you should be compelled to give mercy. Do you see what he's saying? There's a warning here as well. If you refuse to show mercy to others, then mercy will not be shown to you. What this means is that if you cannot extend mercy, grace, and love to others, what it says to God is that you have not received it yourself because when you receive that kind of grace and that kind of mercy and that kind of love, it will change you fundamentally from the inside out. And when you receive mercy, it triumphs over judgment. How can we rid our hearts of evil, this viral prejudice and harmful partiality? By receiving the mercy of Christ and becoming so overwhelmed and filled with it that we extend and offer it to others. That's the treatment plan. Mercy and grace and love. Receive it by faith and let it flow from you to others. 
It is antithetical to the gospel, and it reveals a false faith when we show partiality and prejudice and racism. When we ask, how are we to accept other people? The answer is real simple. We accept and value and appraise others the same way that Jesus did. We're to interact with them the same way that Christ would interact with them. See, when we've been changed by the grace of God, you will desire to extend that same grace and compassion to others, especially and particularly the helpless and the needy. See, if you find that you have an inhospitable heart posture, it's evidence that you have not received the Lord's hospitality. If you have no desire in your heart to show mercy, it's proof that you've not received the mercy of God. And if you consistently show favoritism, it's evidence that you have not been shown the unconditional favor of God. My hope is that all of us this morning would see areas of our life where we have not been as merciful to others as we should be. If there's anyone in the room today, I hope it's all of us, where this has landed on you in some kind of way, where you have felt some conviction in some kind of way, you need to repent. You need to, you need to call it a, a lie, call it what it is, repent and turn away from it, confess it to God and ask for his forgiveness. And at the same time, remember, you are still loved and accepted by God. You are not condemned. Trust that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Strive to extend that same mercy and grace to others. And if there's anyone here this morning and you would go, I don't know that I've ever received that kind of mercy and grace from God. You still believe, you're still striving to earn your way to God. That God will accept you for what you bring to the table. You may not say it out loud, but in your heart, you feel like sometimes your prejudice and your judgmental attitude is actually justified. I am begging you. I am pleading with you to receive mercy today so that you do not receive judgment. Pray and ask that the Lord would break your heart. Ask him to show you the severity of your sin so that you can receive his mercy today.